Let's pray, Lord, we thank you for the uh, privilege of worship on this Resurrection Sunday and ask the Holy Spirit you would uh, take the Word of God and make application to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We are here today to say that the, the banner cry of the believer is that Christ is risen. Romans 1, 4, verse 4 says, He was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection out of the dead. He was declared with power. The resurrection is proof that Jesus is who He claimed to be, Messiah King. And later in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says this in verse 23 of chapter 4. The words, it was credited to Him, speaking of Abraham, were written not for Abraham alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness or declare us righteous for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So we know that we are declared righteous in the sight of God because Jesus rose from the dead, that his death on the cross for our sins was effectual because he rose again from the dead in First Peter. Chapter 1, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus out of the dead. And he has given us this hope that is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He is risen from the dead. It is a living hope. Christ says you, do, you ask for a sign. He says the only sign you'll have is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the Son of God will be in the belly of the earth and he will rise again. His resurrection proves, underscores that Christ is indeed Messiah King. And so I want to go to a passage this morning in the book of Acts. It's Acts 25 and 26 will be mostly in chapter 26, where Paul is making a defense of his life before an appointed Roman leader named Agrippa. Before that takes place, there's a minor official named Festus who's been charged with overseeing this trial of the apostle Paul, and he says to his superior Agrippa, you know, there's this consternation all over the place over this man named Paul. And so when I got everyone together to hear about their accusations against Paul, and they were demanding the death penalty, here was their accusation. And he said this with incredulity, like, can you believe this? Chapter 25, verse 19, he said, when all the accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. He kind of threw up his hands. What do you do with that? And then Agrippa said, you know, I'd like to hear this guy speak. He said, well, consider it done. So the next day, he says that they brought Paul in, shackled, and then Bernice... And Agrippa came in, the Bible says, with great pomp and circumstance. They processed in, Paul standing there with chains on. And then Paul 
makes his defense. Agrippa says, you may speak, Paul. And Paul says, I consider it an honor to be here today to make my defense before you. Agrippa, and Paul probably said that tongue-in-cheek because let me tell you real quick Agrippa's family history. His great-granddaddy was Herod the Great who was responsible for the genocide of babies when he heard Christ was born who was going to be the king. His, his granddaddy was Herod Antipas who had John the Baptist beheaded. His daddy, Herod Agrippa I, had James the Apostle killed with a sword. So he came from a great family heritage and the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So he's standing there talking to Agrippa II. He says, I consider it an honor to be speaking to you today to, to give my defense. And then this is what Paul says. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem, they have known me for a long time and can testify that if they're willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I've lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise. Our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul says, I'm just believing what the fathers believed throughout the history of of Judaism, that there would be a Messiah King who would come. And I believe his name is Jesus, and he's risen out of the dead. And then Paul says, remember this. He says, before my change, I was, he uses the word, I was obsessed with persecuting the church. I went from house to house. I, I pulled people out of the house and threw them in the jail. And he says in this text, and, and when people asked for the death penalty for these people, I said, give it to them full bore. That's the type of man that I was. He said, one day I had left my country. I was going to a foreign country, a city named Damascus. And as I was going to Damascus, something happened that forever changed my life. Oh, great king. This is what he says. I was on, about noon, I was on a road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions we all fell to the ground and i heard a voice saying to me in aramaic saul saul why do you persecute me it is hard for you to kick against the goads and i said who are you lord i am jesus whom you are persecuting i I just I i thought you know it's hard for you paul to kick against the goads a goad was a stick that you used to compel an animal to go forward some versions say it's hard to go against the grain or it's hard to go against the barriers i just thought you know, just just a few minutes i want to i want to ask what, what were what were the goads in paul's life and what were the goads in your life that drew you to messiah or maybe are pushing you to messiah one one goad for paul is is his doubts about this christ person his doubts that was one of, a goat is a barrier, it's a directional sign that says go this way. And we can kick against the goats. We, we, can, we can ignore directional arrows, much to our destruction. But one goat was the Christ. 
Paul was persecuting Christians. But, but he, he either had heard, or some people say he may have met Christ, or he had certainly heard of him. And, and, and the things that he heard must have absolutely traumatized him or drew him. For example, this man Christ claimed to forgive sins, thus making himself equal with God. Paul said, away with that. This man named Christ touched lepers. Paul said, how did you do that? This man named Christ overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple, saying, you shall not make the house of God a place of commerce. This man named Christ taught with authority like we've never heard before. In fact, it was said in the Gospels, where in the world did this man get this learning? He's a carpenter. You'd have to go to numerous universities to get what he's got. And Paul thought, where, where, where did he get it? Where did he get it? Who is this man? Who is this man that I am persecuting? Similarly for us, many of us. When we trace how we came to know Christ as Savior, or maybe some of you are considering the Christmas message and the Easter message and the resurrection message, there is a beauty and a glory about Christ that draws us in. And I would say to Christ followers, I would say to people who are on the periphery and are not there yet, study the life and the message and the words of Jesus all the time. Another go for Paul was other, other believers. I mean, he's gone house to house, dragged them out, thrown them into prison. He had seen courage and, and bravery and fortitude. And he says, well, what, what's going on here? But, but, but particularly we know from Acts chapter 6, one of the first deacons was a man named Stephen. The Bible says he was full of grace and full of the Holy Spirit. And that he was called in one day to give a, a defense for what he was saying and Acts chapter 6 says that as he spoke, his face shined like the face of an angel. And, and he gave this overview of, of Jewish history and the hope of the Messiah. And, and, and then at the end of this sermon, he said this. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That's not a good way to end a sermon, by the way. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet you, your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. It says when they heard this, the ruling council heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said that which sealed his death. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Saying he's equal with God. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then when he fell to his knees because he had been beaten down by rocks, 
he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And Paul stood there, giving hearty approval. He may have even thrown some rocks. It says Saul was there giving hearty approval to his death. And it says in the next chapter, verse 3, but, but Saul, who became Paul, began to destroy the church going from house to house. And he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. See, Paul had seen the reality of Christ and other people. Similarly, I was with a group of young men Thursday morning. And I just said, you know, guys, tell me, name, name someone that was a signpost to you when you came to faith. A goad. And everyone, just without hesitation, boom. When I was in high school, when I was in college, or this person, and we made fun of him, but he stood strong, and his, his wife just spoke of Christ. Every, there, there are countless people here today, who, I am one of them, who can say there was this one person who was a signpost to the reality of Christ. That's what we're called to do, Christ followers, to be goads to point to Jesus, to live out the reality of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Is, does that is that who we are? We're to be goats, pointing signpost, pointing people to Christ. That was the goat for Paul, Stephen. If you're not a believer, do you know people in your life that just point to the reality of Christ? The, the third goat was, was Paul's conscience. You know, Paul's a Pharisee of the Pharisees in the book called Philippians. He says, when it came to observing the law, I was faultless. And he says in this defense, he says, I, I was part of the strictest sect known to Judaism. I was a Pharisee, which is a party, maybe 50, maybe 60 years old, that stood for purity and really observing the law. And so Paul was pure and he observed the law. But late at night... When Paul was in bed and he couldn't sleep, maybe because of the people just put in prison, he probably started rehearsing the law in his mind. And he got the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Which means not to desire anything else anybody else has. You know, you can keep the other commandments superficially. Coveting. Paul says, oh man. Paul says, you mean when I'm, when I'm at the stoplight? And somebody pulls up to me in a boat bigger than the Titanic. And you think, man, I wish I had that. Is that coveting? Yes, Paul. That's coveting. When I when I fantasize about another man's herd of cattle or his wife, is that Paul, that's coveting? I can't keep that. And maybe he heard what this man named Jesus whom he had persecuted said. And Paul said, well, that's ridiculous because this man Jesus has said, um, the Bible says, the Mosaic law says, you shall not commit murder. He says, true. But if you look at your brother and you call him a blockhead, you've broken the commandment. And the Bible says, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, You've committed adultery. And Paul said, that's ridiculous. But then coveting. See, a, a goad is, what, what do you do with the secret thoughts in your mind? 
One hymn writer said, Dark is the stain that I cannot hide. It's known, it's seen. To me, what can avail to wash it away? Those little thoughts, those inclinations. Look, there is flowing a crimson tide from the cross. It's only by the work of Christ that I stand before God. Or as Shakespeare wrote in his incredibly insightful work, Macbeth. You know, Lady Macbeth colluded to have her husband killed and she just couldn't handle it. And she'd walk around the castle in her maniacal despair saying, out, damn spot, out, out, out. She couldn't wash it off. What, what, what washes away our sin? The reality of Christ. These, these signposts, what's your story? Christ's followers, what were the goads in your life? What people, what, what bludgeoning of your conscience? What attraction of the person of Christ? If you're not a Christ follower, consider these things. Please, please consider these things. So, so very quickly, let me go to Paul's defense. And he says this, it's, it's, it's an amazing statement. He he starts going through his, what happened to his life. And he says this, I stand here today and I testify to small and great alike that I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets of Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead, he will proclaim light to his own people and to all the Gentiles. At this point, Festus, one of the minor officials, interrupted him, and he cried out, You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I'd like to meet somebody that had that said about them. If you can see me afterwards, I've been told many times, my great learning is driving me insane. I'd like to meet you. No one's ever said that to me. Your great learning is driving you insane, Paul. You're thinking too deeply. You've studied too hard. You've gone over the edge. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because... It was not done in a corner. That just arrested me. It wasn't done in a corner. It's true and it's reasonable. It's true. It's reasonable because it wasn't done in a corner. This resurrection wasn't a mystical experience that happens in the hearts of people who make a holy pilgrimage to a special site somewhere in the Middle East. This resurrection is a historical event. It's true. Therefore, it is reasonable. And it wasn't done in a corner. And I, I thought about other world religions. One thing that makes me appreciate and affirm and glory in the Christian faith is studying other world religions. For example, I'll just mention too, Hinduism. Hinduism they believes in as many as, well, some say 300,000 gods. One of their main gods is the god Ganesh or Ganesha. Ganesh, according to Hebrew teaching was guarding a, a higher god and her husband came in and he wouldn't let the husband into her room because the husband uh, because he was told not to let anybody in he didn't know the husband and so the husband in his anger uh, severed the head of this this boy and so the wife came out and she was upset and 
The husband said, I'm sorry I did. I didn't understand he was guarding you. And so he sent some of his emissaries out. He says that the first person being you find asleep facing the north, sever the head and bring it back to me. And so they went out and the first animal or person they found sleeping north to the north was an elephant. And so they cut off the elephant head and brought it back. And he attached the elephant head to the, to the little boy's body. In Ganesh, you can see them throughout in India. In any taxi you get in, you'll see Ganesh. And most taxis, because he, he's the god of fortune and prosperity. And here's, here's Ganesh, one of the most popular gods in India. Now, if you, if, you said, if you said to a Hindu person who's learned it, do you really believe that somewhere, sometime, that an elephant head was attached to a little boy's body? I said, oh, no, 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 no. That is a wonderful myth that points to a deeper reality. But it's, it's true, and we would say in an existential mystical way, it's true. Or Shiva, maybe the main god of Hinduism, one of the main gods. is the god of power and might and the, ga- the god of uh, reproduction. And um, usually you see the locks flowing from her hair, her head, uh, um, that's the river Ganges, supposedly. The river Ganges flows from the head of Shiva. And you say, you know, do, do you really believe that the source of the river Ganges is from the head of Shiva? Say, oh, no, 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 no. It is a myth or a great teaching that points to a deeper reality. Or this is religion of Islam. They have the Quran, their holy book, given to the prophet Muhammad, as they would say, may God, may God honor his name or honor the prophet. Over 20 years, over 20 years, he had revelation. And so how was it given to him? It was given to him by the angel Gabriel. So he, he wrote it down just as he received it. It was automatic dictation. And you say, well, was there anyone there who saw the angel Gabriel give this revelation to Muhammad ever? Oh, no, no, no. It's just between the G- Gabriel only appeared to Muhammad. Okay. Right. Listen to First Corinthians fifteen. I mean, this is it's a true because it's reasonable. It wasn't done in a corner. Listen, um, chapter three, First Corinthians fifteen. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Now, this book was written 20 to 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians. And Paul says, if you don't believe me, if you don't believe the apostles, then go see one of these 500 brothers. Some have died, but most are still alive. Go see them. It happened. That's what he's saying. It happened. And he says later, if Christ wasn't physically raised from the dead, we're to be pitied more than all men because we are preaching and believing and holding to a lie. It's not a myth that makes us feel better. It's not an existential experience that lets us cope with life. It is blazing truth. That's what the Bible says. It's a true and reasonable faith that was not done in a corner. Agrippa, you know this. Who is this Christ? That's why we say, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? 
Because Christ is risen from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who will follow him. Do you know that hope? C.S. Lewis died in, uh, those two verses, died in um, 1963, Uh, became a believer at age 31, professor at Oxford. And and Lewis grew progressively ill in his latter months, and he wrote this about a year before he died. He wrote to a friend, what a state we have got into, this is 1962, when we can't say, I'll be happy when God calls me home. Without being afraid, one will be thought to be morbid. After all, didn't St. Paul say just the same? Why should we not look forward to our arrival in heaven? He then concluded his letter by saying that one can do only three things about death. He says to desire it, to fear it, or to ignore it. The third alternative, which is the one the modern world calls healthy, he says is surely the most uneasy and precarious of all. And he says in the Screwtape Letters, he says, you know, the, the devil is in control of most of our retirement centers. He says, you go to a retirement center and people come in and say, you're going to get better. So they're not going to get better. They're going to die. And very soon. So shouldn't we tell people they're going to die? Ignore it. Con- hope. Conversely, Sigmund Freud, who died in 1940, 23 years before Lewis, said, as an unbelieving fatalist, I can only sink into a state of resignation when faced with the horror of death. And he wrote that to one of his best friends, a man named Ernest Jones, who had just buried his, his daughter. And Lewis had said earlier, he said, when I, when I, when I was not a Christian, the, the one thing about the Christian faith, one of many that absolutely unhinged me, was there was no road that said exit. <laughs> it was forever. And it scared me to think of forever because I had no hope. My question is, what do you do with life? I saw a movie recently. I, I told the men this two weeks ago. I strongly recommend this movie for adults. It's called The Descendants, starring George Clooney. And it is a marvelous movie. Marvelous movie. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you a bit of the movie, but you would get this in the trailer, so I'm not giving it away. Uh, Clooney is a very successful man in Hawaii whose grandparents and great-grandparents bought a huge amount of land in Hawaii. He's lived there. Uh, these, the movie opens with him in his wife's hospital room. She's in intensive care with all types of tubes running in her. And you can hear his thoughts. And he says, uh, Elizabeth, if you're trying to get my attention for being a negligible hub, husband and an absent father, you've done so. Please, please, please wake up. And she never wakes up. She dies. And in, in the midst of her slow death he discovers that she was having an adulterous relationship. And he shows this man going through all types of emotions. And he is a noble-minded man. He shows him going through anger and a lack of forgiveness and annoyance over his oldest daughter, who's a 17-year-old who's living life 
without any regard to her future. It shows, it shows sorrow. It shows, and as I watched the movie, and at the end of the movie, they go out in a large kayak and they poured their mother's and his wife's ashes into the beautiful waters outside of Hawaii. As I watched it, I thought, you know, even if you're a noble-minded man, where do you go with your sorrow? Where do you go? Where do you go with your disappointments? As Christ followers, with our disappointments, and we all have disappointments, we go to the one who said, trust me, trust me, the best is yet to be. The outward man is perishing, but the inner man is being renewed. I has not seen nor has entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Where do you go with your lack of forgiveness? I mean, really, if you're, if you're a counselor and you're, and you're talking to people who have to walk through the painful valley of forgiveness, what's the basis? It'll be good for you? Well, yeah. The basis of our forgiveness is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you in Jesus. Who do you have to forgive? If you're a Christ follower, the basis of forgiveness is the reality of the cross. Where do you go? Where do you go with death? For heaven's sake, where do you go with death? We stand and we say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where do you go with aging? I mean, you go on and on and on. The glory of the gospel of Jesus who has risen from the dead. Very quickly. Recent book was written by a wonderful writer named A.N. Wilson, a British writer, historian. It's on Adolf Hitler. And this is what he said. He, he said, and others will disagree with this. He said, what set Hitler apart was not his ideology. He said, you know, racism was everywhere, especially in the 1930s. I think he's right about that. What I said Hitler apart was not the economic downcast of, of Germany. He said, in my opinion, what set Hitler apart was his absolute ability to hypnotize people as he spoke. He said, Hitler, in his opinion, he said, is the most hypnotic artist of post-literacy in the history of the modern world. He said he, he, he spoke and he said, henceforth the German people were seen as an orchestra whom he could conduct and as a great chorus whom, who would, could sing his compositions, close quote. That's what he says. He says Hitler was the Enlightenment's, quote, cloven hoof, close quote. He said Hitler is, is the, the application of man living in the death of God. Incredible comment. I also read last week, there's a a man named Stephen Neal, a very well-known bishop. And he said in the aftermath of World War II, he had the chance to get to know one of the men inside Hitler's inner circle. It's very interesting. He didn't say who the man was. He said, this man told me, he said, if you blindfolded me and took me into a house with ten rooms... And I walked through, and you put Adolf Hitler in one of the rooms, I could tell you which room he was in because there was a power and there was a dynamic that emanated from his body. I would say that's evil. That was evil. He said, 
He said, when, to, know, to know the Fuhrer, he said, was either, number one, to quickly walk away, number two, to try to kill him, or number three, to fall before him and, and, and with body, soul, and spirit. And Stephen Neal, the bishop, a godly man, said, as I, as I ruminated on that, I thought, conversely, in the life of Christ, you see the same response. You see many just, just walked away. Some tried to kill him, but many fell and worshipped at his feet. The resurrection of Jesus calls us to consider the claims of Christ. I, I plead with you. I plead with you. If you're not a Christ follower, if you've never come to him by faith, consider the reality of Christ. The God-man who lived a perfect life died on the cross as our substitute and rose victorious from the dead. It wasn't done in a corner. It was not done in a corner. It is a historical reality. It's not an existential leap into the void of the unknown. It is reality. Who is this Christ? Please, please, please walk through that. Let's pray. Lord, for this day of celebration we are so thankful and lord those of us who are christ followers thank you for the directional signs the barriers you put in our life to point us to messiah king whether that was a, 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 a reading of the bible and coming to know the reality of christ and or people in our lives and or dealing with our conscience that wouldn't let us off the hook so we thank you for that and we thank you for the strong reality of Christ. We thank you that this Apostle Paul stood before this pomp and circumstance and this volatile family of murderous intent who were representatives of Rome. And he said with chains upon his wrists, um, this is a true and reasonable faith. King Agrippa, this was not done in a corner. And Lord, let us contemplate the reality of Christ. And the eternity that awaits us once we die. So we bless you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.